Okay, so we are in a new series this morning. Um, as Matt said, it is called Identity, and we are talking about who we are, uh, who we are as individuals, who we are as the church, and uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't help but do this. I had to do it. I just thought about it this morning. Um, about a month ago, my daughter in preschool was student of the week, and uh, they, uh, so this is what they get to do, and it's a poster, and uh, you probably can't see it very well from back there, but this is, she gets to take a poster board home, and she gets to decorate it and make it all about herself, and uh, she did not do all of this herself. Uh, her mom helped with a lot of it, and it was late. I just feel like I should tell you that, that we were late. Uh, we forgot about it. Um, my special poster all about me, there's a picture of her family, and there's one that says, hi, I'm Davey, and my brother Tegan, and sweet pickles, because she likes pickles, and mac and cheese, because who doesn't love that stuff, and her dog Barry, and her favorite color's purple, and Davey loves rainbows, and at the very bottom it says, I can do flips all day, because she can. It's actually scary. Um, we have a huge trampoline in the backyard, and she just does flips all day long. That is Davy. Um, so we don't do these anymore, and I mean like when we grow up. Uh, we, we, we talked about this as a staff this morning. Maybe we should make that like a project, you know? Everyone for the Identity Series has to do an All About Me poster, and then we could get up and we could share them. And uh, if, I, if I, you know, but I don't think we're going to do that. You can make one if you want. That's fine. You can put it out in the lobby or something. You could show it to people that walk by if they're interested and they want to see it. But uh, we don't do these as adults. Uh, at least I don't think we do. Um, you kind of grow out of them as kids. But the funny thing is that if we were to talk about who we are, like our identity as people, as individuals, we would actually still think of most of these kinds of things. We would think of things that we're interested in, think of the people in our lives, think about our favorite food or color, I don't know, maybe not favorite color, but, uh, you know, our favorite, like, just the stuff that we're into. And the idea of how we define identity actually doesn't really change that much, it seems, no matter how old you get. Um, but the truth is that, like, who we really are um, is not made up by these things, even, even uh, no matter who you are. It's not really ultimately made up by these things. Um, I'm going to define identity as a specific thing, and it'll kind of carry through this whole series, and it is this. Identity is a lasting sense of self. It is who you are in a way that is sort of lasting. And I say that because what we're talking about in this series is we're trying to kind of go, we're, we're going to say below the surface or beneath the surface to get past all the surfacey things that we often find our identity in, because that's really what we do. We point to things that are outward. We point to things that are expressions of uh, phases of our life. We talk about how old we are, our gender, who we're in a relationship with, our family. We talk about our job. We talk about our level of income. We talk about where we live in terms of a country or things like that. And we say that those things are our identity. But I would argue that in order to get to a lasting sense of self, one that sort of remains throughout the multiple many changes of life and whatever life throws at us that we have no control over whatsoever, I think that you have to go deeper than that to talk about identity, and that's what we're going to do in this series. This is important because life changes so much, and it seems to change faster than it used to before. My grandfather worked for one company his whole life. For like 40 years, he worked for this company. Um, he lived in two houses. 
his whole life. He was in one marriage. Uh, and my grandfather uh, had a much more, it looks like, sort of uh, static life than the ones that people of my generation live, who work for multiple companies or multiple jobs, who live in lots of different houses, who move around to lots of different places, and many are in lots of different marriages or relationships. Um, it, is, it is more obvious to us now, it is, more than ever, that our identity can't be in some of those things because they simply change so often, they change so much, that we find ourselves continually having an identity crisis, which is when you stop and you reevaluate and you go, wait, who am I really, right? What am I about really? Am I really about these things? Because if these things change or they go away, then who does that leave me with? What does that leave me with? So that's what we're gonna talk about in this series. If you have a Bible, you can turn it to Mark chapter five. We're not getting there just yet, but I promise that we will get there to Mark chapter 5 eventually. And when we do, you know, I'm going to be like really, really going pretty quick and I'm not going to want to stop and, and you know, so you got to turn there now, okay? That way you're there. So I want to ask a question and this is the first one. Who am I? This whole series is just for me to stand up here and ask this question and, and think out loud. Who am I? This is the question of identity. Who am I? What does that even mean, right, to say, who am I? Who I am can either be determined by, um, well, it can be determined by two things. It can be determined by what is going on within me, or it can be determined by something outside of me. Uh, for the most part, uh, we understand identity as trying to best figure out what's going on in our own hearts our desires, our passions, our inclinations, and then finding a way to live those out. Removing any barriers, any obstacles to living out what is in our heart. And that if we can do that, then we can be ourselves. And anything that gets in the way of that is an enemy to us truly being able to be ourselves. It comes from within. And so what I do is I look in a mirror, I look inward, I try to best figure out first what's going on inside of me because that's where I'm gonna, that's where I'm gonna get the answer to the question of who I am. Now there's another way to answer this question. It is to look to something outside of yourself. It is to say, what if who I am is determined not by what's in here, but something that's out here. Something outside of me looking in saying, I can tell you who you are. Now, the Bible says that who I am doesn't come from the desires that I have in my heart. The Bible says that who I am comes first and foremost from this outside perspective. And the reason why that is, is very, very simple, and it's at the very beginning of the Bible, and it's at the very beginning of the Bible because it makes all the rest of the Bible matter to us. And it's this, who I am is someone who was created. I'm someone who was put together, who was created by an author. And that author put me together for a reason. And so, uh, so that is the first answer to the question of who am I? I'm someone who was made. And I was made for a purpose. Now that idea is one that sort of transcends me. It's bigger than me. And regardless of how I feel about it, unfortunately, it's still true. 
And I say regardless of how I feel because some of us find this idea very liberating. The idea that who I am isn't determined by me and what's in my heart, but by something outside of me, which is God. But believe it or not, and I think many of us can believe this, many of us don't find it liberating. We find it suffocating. We find it like handcuffs. That someone else can tell us who we are, can tell us what we're about and why we're here. This can seem beautiful to us, or this can seem terrifying to us. Some of us can say, this feels right to me. And some of us can say that this feels unfair and wrong. What the Bible says is this. The Bible says in Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. The Bible says that not only were you made, but you were made carefully and meticulously and intentionally. And you were, you were knitted together in your mother's womb. And this means something about you. It means that you are very valuable. It means that you matter. It means that you weren't an accident. And regardless of what you might think about yourself or other people around you, That's what it means to be knitted together in your mother's womb. We were at the museum uh, the day after Christmas. Not a good day to go to the museum. And we went to OMSI and uh, Oregon Museum of Science and Industry. Is that right? Okay. Because if you don't know, you're like, what is OMSI? That's a weird word you just made up. Uh, We were at OMSI and uh, we went there with our kids and we're in this loud, crazy, insane museum full of people, full of kids. And then we stumbled upon an exhibit on accident. We like kind of backed into it and it was very quiet and it was very dark. And we were like, oh, this is kind of a nice break. And as we began looking around, we realized that we were in an exhibit called the, I think it's called the prenatal exhibit or the the stages of human development. Now this exhibit, we thought at first wasn't real. We thought that uh, what what we were seeing was maybe uh, recreations or replicas of embryos and fetuses and babies. But what we were in fact seeing was real embryos and fetuses and babies. Uh, And what had happened was many years ago, a doctor developed a way to perfectly preserve uh, these, uh, these embryos, these babies. And this doctor went around the country and collected miscarried babies, mostly through uh, mothers that, that died while carrying a child and who were organ donors. And he found a way to collect one representing every single week of human development within the mother's womb. And so as you walk into this room and you begin looking, you just see a tiny little thing and it says, this is like a little fertilized egg and you keep going and it's like a little microscope slide almost and you keep going and and as you get further and further along, you are able to see, and this is what it looks like, you are able to see week by week by week the very way that a baby is stitched together in their mother's womb. And as you read about the things that happen in each one of these uh, embryos, week by week by week, you realize that that is exactly what God is doing. This room is completely silent. Not because they say, please be silent, but because you cannot help but be overwhelmed by what you are looking at. And by the beauty of human life, as you stand there and watch a baby grow week after week. We are knitted together in our mother's womb. 
And that means that we are valuable, and that means that we matter. That means that we aren't an accident. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been created. And so why is there good and evil? Why is there right and wrong? Why is there uh, the way things maybe should be and the way things shouldn't be? Why is there order? Because there is an author. Because someone made all of us and said there is a way that this ought to be. And what was the goal? Why? Why make all of us? Was it so that we could then be released to live out our own impressive lives to impress this creator by showing them how unique and distinguished that we could all be as we beat one another at being the best? Believe it or not, we can't really impress the creator that way. We're not very impressive in that form. And so when we hear that there is an order, we hear that there is a way that things ought to be, when we hear that this is who we are, that we are created, many of us don't like the way that that feels. Like I said, we find it suffocating. We find it terrifying. And to that, Paul says this in Romans 9. He says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and for dishonorable use? Indicating that not only does he have the right to create us uh, for a purpose, but to determine who we are and how we will be and what we will be like. Paul wasn't actually talking about pottery. This was not like one line in a big thing where he just decided to randomly talk about his love for pottery and pottery making. Paul is talking about people and the way that we're made. And so, if this is true, then we ask the question, why am I here? Who am I? I am a created being. And who I am is determined by that fact because he's my author. And so then the question comes, well, then why am I here? Why would he make me? And the Bible's really clear about that too. The Bible says you are here because God wants you to bring glory to him. And the way that you do that is very simple. You depend on him. You draw all your life from him. That's how he made you. He made you to draw all of your life from him. And so the more that you can do that, the better off that you will be at being who you were meant to be. Because this is your identity. Your identity is in being created, and your identity is in living in dependence on this God who created you. Not independence from him. Not by, again, trying as hard as you can to prove to this God how valuable you are without any need for him, as if that were to impress him somehow. But you are to live this way. And what the Bible also tells us is that to live in this way is profoundly fulfilling. That because you're made to be a certain way, that if you, believe it or not, rocket science, if you live that way and do that thing and be that way, then you will be fulfilled because that's why you were intended to live. And so the question is this, do you believe that that is fulfilling? That is the question. Do you believe that it would be fulfilling to live that way? more than any other thing that you could pursue, more than any other identity that you could maybe find for yourself, do you believe that if your identity was nothing more than I'm created by God and I live to be dependent upon him, 
Do you believe that that could be fulfilling? Because if you can believe that, well, then you can move on. If you can't, then you make a, you make a hard left. And until you can, then the rest won't make sense. But there's something that we see in ourselves, and there's something that we see in the world around us, which is this. For all of this stuff and all these people who were created by this God who knitted us together and was very intentional and apparently knew what he was doing, why does it all seem messed up? What's wrong with it? Or the better question, what's wrong with me? When I think about who I am, I have to be honest about the fact that there's something off about me. Now, maybe that's, I'll say this, that's for the more self-aware of us, okay? Some haven't yet gotten beyond what's wrong with the world, or maybe beyond what's wrong with all of you, right? What is wrong with all of you or all of them? But hopefully, you've been able to get beyond that point, and you've been able to recognize that there's something about, about me that seems off, that seems to get in the way of me being who I'm supposed to be, and it makes it hard for me to know my identity because every time I try, something sidetracks me, something get, gets me off, something essentially sabotages me. There's no way that I can understand myself without acknowledging a sense of something that is hard to kind of articulate, which is this, that something isn't quite right. This is part of why it's so hard to hold on to a sense of myself because families break and relationships break and jobs go away and I shoot myself in the foot all the time, some literally, some figuratively. But because of that, because of that reality, how do I understand who I am? There's a... um, I guess the best way to describe him is a writer and a director. His name is Jonathan Nolan, and his brother Christopher Nolan makes all these Batman movies, and they make these movies together, and these guys have written and directed these really great movies, and this guy Jonathan Nolan with his wife uh, made a TV show for the last few years called Westworld, and this TV show is about robots that are created to live and be as much like human beings as possible. It's like artificial intelligence stuff. And he is not, from what I can tell, at all a believer. He is an atheist. He does not believe in God. And yet he was interviewed recently, uh, asked about his show, because his show depicts people in a pretty, uh, in a pretty dim way. The, the show depicts humans, people, uh, not very well. And they ask him about why do you depict people that way in your show, and this is what he said. He said, I'm surrounded by the wonders of the creations of human beings. I have children, and my wife and I are reminded daily of how much beauty there is in humanity. But you turn on the news, and it's a disaster. I've been reading a lot of history this season, a little bit connected to the show, but also just following the train of things I'm interested in. And it's depressing to realize how familiar some of these problems are. It's like we just can't figure these things out. We come back to them again and again. It's as if there's a flaw in our code, and it follows us around. Wherever we go, there we are, and we just can't get out of our own way. All the beauty and incredible things we brought, and we just consistently find a way to mess it up. 
This is his conclusion as a person who does not believe in God when he looks at humanity. And when he tries to depict humanity, he says there's no other way to depict us than this. Because for all the beautiful things that we can do, we seem to consistently find a way to sabotage ourselves. We live in a world of such beauty, and it's been created by this perfect and immensely powerful God, and yet it seems so flawed, and we can't ignore it. I can't ignore it. I can't be me without being affected by this. And maybe with enough money and with enough opportunity and with enough self-discipline, I can avoid it for a long time, but I cannot ultimately ignore it if I want to know who I really am in that world that I live in. And I can decide that the world is broken, that society is broken, that countries are broken and politicians are broken. I can decide that all the people that I keep coming across seem broken and that I'm probably part of the solution. But I also maybe see the self-destruction and what I do to myself. I see that I tend to hurt others around me. And you can accept this and say this is natural, but is it? And does this have to be a part of who I am? I was talking with a friend of mine recently, and she's not a Christian, and she was talking about, we were talking about a lot of different things, and we got upon the subject of church. And uh, she was asking me about all of the things the church says about loving people and all of the ways that the church fails to love people. All of the ways historically that the church hasn't been loving and all of the things that happen today by Christians that don't seem loving. And, uh, and the choices that they make, and, and the fact that, that in her mind, in many ways, the church, the Christian church, isn't really, isn't really, like, like, isn't really embodying love the way that it ought to. And I, and I said, you're right. I mean, you're right that in so many ways we have not done that consistently, you know? Uh, that throughout time we haven't, and even now you still see churches and people who are Christians not loving people the way that we say we do, caring way too much about other things that get in the way of us being able to love people, it seems. And, uh, and I was saying, but I, I can't even really defend all that because I'd spend all my time defending all these things that happen that, that, that I haven't even myself done. And I said, besides, I've never done those things and my church hasn't either. So we're like this little exception, you know? And then we got upon the really fun subject of politics, and, uh, which was awesome, and, uh, and she was talking about going out to dinner with a friend um, who uh, she had a suspicion had voted for someone that she hadn't voted for in the presidential election. And they were driving to go have dinner, and her husband said, do not ask them who they voted for. And she said, but I really want to know, and they're our really good friends, and I just want to talk with them about it and have a conversation. He said, don't ask them who they voted for. It's going to ruin the whole night. She's like, nope. I, we'll, we'll see, you know. And then she asked them, and they told her what she was afraid that they would say, that they had not voted for the candidate that she had wanted them to vote for. And she hasn't talked to them since then. And I don't say that because this is a horrible person. I say that because we can talk about love and the need to love and because Christians use that word a lot, we can look at Christians and we can say, well, are you loving enough? But the truth of the matter is that until we get to a point where we acknowledge that the problem with the world is in here with me, that it's not who the president is, and it's not who votes for who the president is, and it's not for all of the people that are in all of the churches and all of the religions, it's me, and the problem begins in my heart. And until we can admit that, then we aren't part of the solution, we're part of the problem. Don't we love feeling like we're part of the solution? Don't we think we are, right? Put me in a group of people. 
Problems will get solved. It will be better if I'm in there. I'm not going to make it worse. I'm going to make it better. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a part of the solution, right? But the truth is that's not true, that we aren't part of the solution as much as we like to think we are, that oftentimes the reason why things happen the way that they do is because people like us are in the group, and that's a hard thing for us to own. And so when I try to ask the question, who am I? Why am I here? What is my identity all about in a way that is lasting? I have to take this into account, and I have to know that what's going on that I experience in the world, because I can point to other people and I can say they are literally killing us. Their, their sin, their lack of love, their decisions are literally leading to death. But can I say that about myself? And that's the question. Can you believe, do you believe that what is wrong with you, that it's a sickness and that it's a sickness that leads to death? Do you believe that? Just as hard as it can be to believe that it's truly fulfilling to live as we were created and intended, it is hard to believe that what we experience within ourselves is a sickness that leads to death every time. And our identity is lost until we understand this. So the question then goes, what gives me life? Because that's why we want to know who we are. We want to know who we are because we want to know how to live. We want to know how to live the best life. We want to know how to live the most purposeful life, the most meaningful life. And more importantly, we want to live the life that is truest to who we are. And so how do we do that? with all of this happening. Mark chapter 5. Here in Mark chapter 5, verse 21, we read about an interaction with Jesus and a person that tells us what this is, what gives life. And when Jesus had crossed again into the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and imploring him, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. We'll stop right there. If you want to know what happened to the guy's daughter, you got to read it yourself. <laughs> Cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. 
I absolutely love this interaction between this woman and Jesus because we read about a scenario, about, about a situation that is described very specifically. Jesus is surrounded by a swarm of people, a throng of people, if you will, surrounded by people that are pressing in upon him from all sides. And only one of them is healed. And which one of them is healed? But it is the woman who is sick and who is dying. Does this woman know that she's dying? Yes. How does she know? It says because she has suffered under many doctors for years. Now, many of you know what that feels like to be sick and to suffer under many doctors for years. And I'm not saying that because doctors are to be suffered under or bad. I'm saying that because that's how it feels to go from doctor to doctor, to go from from possible cure to possible cure, never to get to one, is to suffer under that. And this woman has suffered under all of these for years. She has gotten to the point of saying, nothing else is going to heal me. Nothing else is going to bring me life. And she hears about Jesus. And she goes to where Jesus is. And she thinks that if I can just touch maybe the edge of his garment, that I will be healed. And she is. Now, what is so important about this is two things. One, it answers the question, where is life coming from? Where do we find life? The answer to where we find life is Jesus. Jesus is where we find life. Every time, that's the answer. He's the answer. And the question of how do we find life from Jesus, we see in this woman. It doesn't come from being close to Jesus. It doesn't come from being interested and intrigued by Jesus. It doesn't even come from remaining nearby where Jesus is for a while. It doesn't come from pressing up against Jesus. And it doesn't come from being in a group of people who happen to all be gathered in the name of Jesus. It comes from knowing that you're dying and that Jesus can heal you. And because that woman knew that, and because she reached out to Jesus, she was healed. That is why this story is so profound. This account is so important. Because for many, they've never heard of Jesus. They don't know who Jesus is. And if they did, they would immediately run to him and reach out to him for healing. And we see that in the Gospels. But for many, they've heard of Jesus. They know who Jesus is. They kind of get the idea that there's power in him, that there's some answers in him, that there's some truth in him. And then there are those who know, I'm dying. I'm sick. I'm dying. And without him, I won't have life. Life is found in Jesus but we must respond to him. We cannot be who we are, really ourselves. We cannot have a lasting sense of identity if we do not reach out to Jesus and if we are not healed. And so we ask the question again, who am I? I'm someone who was created, knitted together in my mother's womb with intentionality and with love, which brings me value and brings me a purpose. And that purpose is clear, to depend on God rather than to try as hard as I can to be independent of him, rather than to try to impress him with the way that I live or do something, or rather than to deny him and think that in the end, that's still going to be fine. 
But who I am is also somebody who continues to experience the downfall of my own actions and my own decisions. And if nothing else, when I'm honest, the biggest enemy to me having a true sense of identity is myself. It's not everybody around me. It's not the world around me. I'm not living in a world that's not allowing me to be who I am. I'm not living in a world filled with people, surrounded by people who are getting in the way and tripping me up all the time. It's me. And when I recognize that, I have to ask myself, where am I going to find life? Where will life be found? You could be anyone with any passion or any interest. You could have anything that you would find your identity in. You could be a singer, you could be an artist, you could be a mother, you could be a father, you could be a writer, you could be a builder, you could be an earner. You could be a teacher and you could be a student. You could be a traveler. But whoever you are, those things are not who you are. If for no other reason, because those things don't last. And you could think of any illustration that you want. You could be a castaway off a deserted island that was rescued. You could be a prisoner that was released early from jail. You could be a person who won the lottery you didn't deserve it, who was forgiven a great debt, who, you know, shouldn't have been forgiven it. Regardless, you live with a new lease on life. You live knowing that you shouldn't really be able to live this way. And so the thing that defines you the most isn't any of those things I listed off. It's the fact that you now have life and you didn't have it before. And when you begin to experience death again, you know again where life can only be found. Now the reason why we can't follow our heart to find a sense of our identity, the reason why identity can't come from in here is because we want things that conflict with each other. And again, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that that's true. Or the longer that we live life, the more that we realize that that's true. We want things that compete with one another. Our, 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 our loves, our values of our heart do not line themselves up easily for us and make themselves known and say, I'll be number one, this can be number two, this can be number three. And as we try to figure out which one wins out and try to make one win out each time, we realize that these things get in the way of one another. And this is why, really, you, a lasting sense of you, can't come from there. It will feel good for a while. It will feel good for a season. But it won't last, and it won't be lasting. And so the only way that I can be me is this. It's with the gospel. Can I put my slides back up? like hit a space bar or something because I have a verse to read and I don't have it on my paper so I guess I'll be paraphrasing what we need again and again and again is the gospel 1 Corinthians 15 says that the gospel is something in which you have heard in which you have received on which you stand and by which you live paraphrase and we read that verse whenever we talk about the gospel as a church, about why we need the gospel. Because the gospel isn't something that mattered before. It's something that doesn't just matter today. It's something that matters tomorrow. 
You, you heard and received the gospel before. You stand on the gospel now, and you live in the gospel moving forward. You're always going to need it. You're going to need it all the time. It's going to be the answer to everything. And the reason that it's the answer to everything is because Jesus is going to be life in every situation as you encounter death. Every time you're wanting to get off, you're pulled off track of who you are really meant to be and who you are intended to be, the answer won't be to look within your heart and say, what am I passionate about and do that thing? The answer will be Jesus because he brings life every time. And Paul says, hold fast to that word lest you believed in vain. Why does he say that? To hold fast. Because it seems as though there's something in us that doesn't want to hold fast to the gospel. It seems as though there's something in us that doesn't want to hold fast to the idea that we actually need to find life from Jesus and nothing else. This is the basis for identity. This is a lasting sense of who I am. But it's a hard thing to believe for many of us. And it's a countercultural thing to believe because it comes from outside of us and tells us who we are. Some of us find it freeing. Some of us find it suffocating. Some of us find it beautiful. Some of us find it terrifying. Regardless of how you find it, it's true. And that's what we have to wrestle with. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the fact that you have told us who we are, not because we don't have suggestions and not because we don't have ideas of our own, Lord. We have more than enough of those. But because as we look in your word, we see again and again and again how well you truly do understand us. And why do you understand us so well? Because we are your creation, because you are our author. Father, our prayer is that we would be able to truly believe that it is fulfilling to live for you, to depend on you. Our prayer is that we would believe that it is truly fulfilling and that we would recognize that we struggle and that there is death in our life and that we would trust that life is in Christ. Lord, that is a hard thing for us to believe but our prayers that as we worship, as we reflect on this, as we pray, that you would hammer that into our hearts, Lord. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Father, we just prayed, uh, we just sang before that if, all of, if more of you, Lord, means less of us, then we want to give you everything. And we want you to take everything. Uh, there's not many of us who can't say that we want more of you if we've had any taste of you, any little bit of you, we want more of you. We know how good you are. But the hard truth for us is knowing that that means less of us. When it comes to our identity, it's no different, Lord. Um, truly being who we were intended to be means actually getting out of the way. And that, and that if the only way to have more of you is to have less of us, then that means that our desire is for you to take from us, Lord, so that we can have more of you. That's a hard prayer to pray uh, because we like having a lot. We like being able to depend on ourselves and we like having our own sense of identity independent of you. It makes us feel distinct from other people. It makes us feel important in the world. Um, it makes us feel like we matter, but when we're honest, all the ways in which it makes us feel like we matter are usually independent of you. And so our prayer is that our identity would be deeply rooted in you and that you would do what you have to do in our lives for that to be the case, Lord. Father, you're so good and you, you are so, in, so, so fulfilling, Lord. And we praise you for that, God. It's in your name that we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.